I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 62 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, I'm speaking with Chad Loader. Chad is the CEO and co-founder of Habituate, a Los Angeles-based cybersecurity startup that's transforming the security awareness industry away from its traditional training-centric approach to an approach that's based on measurable risk reduction through influencing and measuring key employee behaviors. Prior to Habituate, Chad was the co-founder and VP of Engineering at Rapid7, which he helped bring to a $900 million IPO in 2015. Chad has also worked as a public company CISO and a strategic advisor to several security startups. In this episode, we discuss his start with freaking, starting Rapid7, the focus on the human element in InfoSec, mistakes users make, how to measure your program's success, how people actually learn security, being a founder, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. All right, Chad, thanks for joining me on Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks How are for, you? I'm doing great, and thanks for uh, thanks for joining before the uh, hopefully nice relaxing vacation you'll be getting over the holiday break. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to uh, kind of start with talking a little bit about your, your, your history. You've been doing this cybersecurity game for a bit. But how did you kind of get into it? What was the thing that drew you into it and got you started? Well, I think, uh, gosh, that's kind of going back quite a ways. <laughs> um, well, my first computer was a Commodore 64 that, uh, you know, we didn't have a lot of money. But somehow someone got the idea to buy uh, buy us kids a, a, a Commodore 64. And uh, I think I was the one who just ended up playing with it more than other folks and, you know, learned how to program and um, got into the bulletin board scene um, in the eighties. And I think through that, I, I sort of got exposed to maybe a little bit of the, the darker side, um, of, of kind of the online BBS scene and freaking phone freaking and stuff like that back in the eighties. And I mean, honestly, it's pretty innocent compared to the sort of stuff that goes on today, yeah. but that's, that's what sort of piqued my interest in computers and, and sort of, um, you know, the, our local university back in, in Lowell, Massachusetts, they had, um, you know, they had a, a a whole sort of computer system with, you know, Vax machines and stuff like that. And I wanted to get access to those and play around with them. So um, I just, uh, with a couple of my friends, learned how to get into that stuff and um, and play around with the systems. And then from there, um, you know, my, my interest in computers um, sparked uh, me to, to actually go to, uh, this is back in, you know, Boston area and went to Northeastern University did about three years of a five-year degree, and it was a dual degree in cognitive science and computer science. And um, this is back before they had sort of a dedicated, you know, artificial intelligence minor. But um, that's what I was into, you know, neuroscience, um, computer science, neural networks, machine vision, stuff like that. And then got recruited out of school by IBM. This is the dot-com boom, you know, late '90s, and so many of us just ended up dropping out and, and going to work in the industry and. Uh, did a bit of work in machine vision, did some work for IBM on the defense messaging system, um, and kind of got back reacquainted with enterprise security through that. And then 
um, in 99, I moved out here to LA and that's when I started uh, Rapid7 uh, with my two co-founders. And yeah, and the rest is kind of history. I mean, did you did you know what Rapid7 was going to become at that time? I mean, it's kind of become ubiquitous with a lot of vulnerability management. And when people think of it, there's the big two or three that are out there and you had one of them. Did you know that that was going to be the path? Uh, actually, I mean, that was the, that was the goal is to is sort of, you know, create this amazing unicorn startup and IPO for a billion dollars. I think at some level, you don't quite believe that that's ever going to happen because mm-hmm. just the odds are stacked against you. Um, but, uh, but we made it happen. It took 16 years. Um, but we, we did make it happen. I'm super proud of what we did there and the culture that we built and the folks that are still there. Yeah, no, it's it's my experiences with the folks at Rap Seven have always been very positive and, and been a big fan of the tool um, because it does kind of get down to some of the fundamentals that we uh, we kind of I think lose focus at sometimes in security is inventory asset management and vulnerabilities and people want to focus on the next new bright shiny thing but really until you have your foundation built it's very difficult to mature your program. Yeah, I'm um, I I describe myself as as very much like a meat and potatoes security guy. Uh, and, and to me, it really security is about getting the basics right. And that, and by the way, just to call them basics doesn't mean that they're easy. Mm-hmm. They're extremely challenging to do at any kind of scale. And, um, but yeah, the basic stuff, keep your stuff up to date and try to, you know, know what you have, use the data from the vulnerability management program, not just to issue tickets and fix things, but to understand a little bit of root causes of how these problems are getting injected in the first place. And, um, you know, and sort of try to use that information to drive a data based, security, you know, improvement program. Mm-hmm. That's the goal. That's always the goal. It's, it's, it's try to know what you have, who has access to it, and then kind of build around it. But since then, you've even kind of looks like you've moved towards maybe the human element a little bit with uh, yeah. Habituate. So how, can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing with them now? Yeah. So uh, Habituate, uh, if I can kind of give a quick plug at www.habituate, <laughs> H-A-B-I-T-U, number eight, dot I-O. Um, and the name of the company is not an accident. Um, so we are focused on solving what has traditionally been called the security awareness problem. And um, it's it's myself and my co-founder, Jason Hainick, who built the worldwide security awareness program for the Walt Disney Company. Um, and for uh, after the breach, Sony Pictures brought him over to do the same. Jason kind of pioneered the use of um, you know, really engaging, funny videos while he was doing awareness at Disney and kind of developed a reputation for, um, you know, making that stuff work and making it effective and actually got Mark Hamill to narrate the videos while he was at Disney. Um, and I was, I met Jason working as a, uh, I, so after Rapid7, I, um, you know, was fully vested and, you know, we were on that IPO path and I decided, hey, I want to get back into the world of, of practitioners and, and understand really in a deep, felt way what our CISO is dealing with. Um, because as a vendor, you think you have an idea and you sort of think you know how everyone should do their jobs, but until you're actually in the seat, it's very, you know, it's very much theoretical. And I took on a, the CISO role at a company out here in LA called True Car, as a you know, public tech company, about 800 employees at the time I was there. And I just remember looking at the security awareness um, mandate that, you know, most companies have, we have to train all our employees yearly. And I mean, man, this is such a crappy experience for employees. I can't believe this is the same as it was 10 years ago when I did this at Rapid7. Um, and, you know, back then Netflix was still mailing DVDs through the mail, you know, and, and Instagram didn't exist. And and I think the approach just felt dated and employees hated it, didn't seem like it was really effective. And 
um, I kind of just met Jason just through the content that he had built and, and, um, you know, picked his brain a bit and we hit it off and he was in LA. I was in LA. We decided to start up this company and, and really solve the core part of the security awareness experience, which is the actual stuff that employees have to go through. And, um, yeah, so it, it's interesting because I think when I, you know, because I have a tech background and because, you know, I was VP of engineering at a big enterprise security company. When I tell people what I do today, they just look at me and kind of go, huh? Security awareness? Why aren't you working on real security? Um, which I think says a lot about how people view awareness and its effectiveness. Um, so, yeah, that's where I'm working today. And I think it's it's time. It's the right time to be doing that kind of work because, you know, we had this different eras in security over time. And we're at this sort of unique cultural moment now where users have more freedom than they ever had. And this utopia that we had of 100% control of the IT environment, the business has rejected that more than a decade ago. You know, you've got BYOD, you've got remote workforces, you've got SaaS apps and shadow IT and all that stuff. And as I see security having evolved since the 90s, I feel like we started out this idea of securing the network, right? Build a, build a perimeter, get a firewall. And, and then I think there was this understanding that, well, that's a good start, but now we have this hard outer shell with the soft GUI center and we need to move inside the network and secure your servers that are on the inside. So that's where Rapid7 came from, you know, vulnerability management, patching. And then it was, okay, now we have to secure the apps. And so you have AppSec, you have WAF, you have all that stuff. And then it was, oh, what about the endpoints? You know, we've got phones, we've got tablets, we've got people's laptops. Um, how do we secure that stuff? And, um, you know, that's where you get into zero trust and, you know, the endpoint um, protection systems like Silence and stuff like that. And, and then I think... There's been a bit of focus on securing the data with DLP and DCAP and, you know, these CASP systems. But um, we've sort of punted dealing with the human part of the problem for as long as we possibly could. And attackers have migrated to the human side of things very, very clearly. People or companies are more likely, three times more likely to get breached via a social attack with phishing or social engineering than by any kind of targeted hack against their infrastructure. And that's from the latest Verizon breach report. Um and so, you know, our lack of focus on the human side of the problem um, has caused attackers to migrate there, which is fine. We've done a good job at securing these other areas and not that they're perfect, but I feel like we've made attackers jobs harder over there. And so now we've got these social attacks that are really prevalent. And beyond that, you've actually got something that's way more prevalent um, than any kind of attacker scenario, which is basic human mistakes in the absence of an attacker. Um, and Kroll, um, does a study every year where they talk about cyber incidents. They do Freedom of Information Act requests against uh, federal government to understand what breaches have occurred and um, what's been investigated and you know where fines have been levied and so on. And they they basically the 2018 Kroll study. They said um, you know breach risk posed by human error are at least as great as those from cyber attacks. And they had 2,124 reports attributed to human error with no attacker present compared to just 292 that were deliberate cyber incidents where there was an attacker. And so there's like this sort of 7x factor of mistakes where no attacker is present that the whole security industry is basically ignoring. And those are real breaches with real harm and fines and all that stuff. They're not sexy. They're not fun. They don't make the news. But quote unquote basic dumb stuff is is uh, is killing companies. Um, and so I think security awareness can do a much better job than, than has traditionally been done. Yeah, some of the more damaging breaches I've had the uh... – unfortunate pleasure having to work on just were those 
one or two things that were either left open. I mean, it's it, it's that kind of issue where attackers only have to be right once, and we have to be right many more times than that. Um, and they they prey on humans making mistakes. And a lot of times we see business email compromises where there's wire fraud, where it's just switching an ACH number. It's a result yep. of a, a significant yep. impact to the business, but it's it's not one of those yeah crazy APT group crawling through nope. the network type of thing. It's just they got them once. Yeah, and sometimes there's no they. Sometimes, in fact, most of the time, there's no attacker at all. It's someone leaving sensitive files on a USB drive and, and losing it. It's somebody forgetting to redact information before sending it out or putting a bunch of you know customer names on the two line instead of BCC. Mm-hmm. Um, those are way more common than any possible attacker scenario. It's interesting, by the way, you mentioned the business email compromise. So if we can kind of geek out on the Verizon data for a bit, mm-hmm. if, if if you know Gabe, who does the, he's the chief data scientist for, for Verizon, he runs the team that does the analysis on that on that huge data set every year. Um, I was going through the data with him on on social attacks and trying to understand the ratios. And I realized that business email compromise, which you mentioned, where someone basically just steals funds from the bank account of the company, is not counted as a data breach in the Verizon data. It's hmm. it's in the data set, but because there's no confidentiality impact, it's not counted in, in breach data by default. It's an incident, but it's not a breach. And so that's really interesting because if you add that business email compromise stuff back in, you realize that the social vector is even more important because you're missing all the the um, you know theft of funds. Yeah, and it's and it's not that does um, I mean that's the heart of really any issue that we're dealing with security is really risk management and mitigating those things that either have financial or reputational harm to the organization and that's one of those things that hits on both of those. Yep, absolutely. And I think it, you know you mentioned risk management. It's it's we're trying to do everything here with data. A, a good CISO is sort of trying to balance her investments across her portfolio and to try to figure out, you know, what are the risks that the business really needs to worry about and how do we buy down risk, you know, with our investments in security and policy and stuff like that. And um, there's, there's, I think, big chunks of security that we're not measuring today. Awareness is a perfect example of something that's very traditionally been very difficult to measure. And so it gets a checkbox approach a lot of the time. Not that CISOs want the experience to be crappy for employees. I mean, that is the face of their security program. But um, as far as actually measurable improvements that you can tie to real risk reduction, you've got basically the fishing click rate. And that's been it for the last 10 years. And it's super, super limited. It's a dangerous kind of vanity metric. And, and I think we can do better. And, and it's interesting you mentioned that, and, and particularly along the metrics that CISOs build. So some of the things I do is, is work as a virtual CISO or CISO advisor with a lot of organizations. And, they, and when trying to focus on this issue, we'll go in and do awareness training. I said, you need to build metrics. And like, what do we have to buy? And I'm like, nothing. What do you have as a help desk ticketing system? Are people reporting things? Yep. And what's the, is it getting better over time? And getting away from that idea of this cultural fear of, oh gosh, I don't want to bother help desk or they're always nasty, but creating that kind of warm, welcoming environment to say, hey, you know what? I did forward something I shouldn't have, or I clicked on something, or this just looks weird. Yeah. Well, I, I, I agree completely. And I think report rate is a great way to measure it, engagement. And, and it frankly is going to be something that helps your blue team jump on incidents faster because most security incidents start as help desk incidents. Someone's like, Hey, my laptop's running weird. It's everything's chugging along, or I got this weird email and I don't know if I should have opened it. 
And so, yeah, I think um, lowering the bar for reporting uh, is huge. And, and a lot of organizations focus on the awareness training and sort of rolling out the training without actually looking at, okay, what are our processes? What is the technology? What is the process? And what is it? How do we, or how are we responding to employees who report stuff? Are you incentivizing them to report things or are you sending them phishing emails, fake phishing campaigns, and then sort of giggling behind your hands as people click on it and being like, oh, can you believe that? You know, these guys fell for that and let's punish them by giving them more training because they quote unquote failed the training. And you know, Jason always has a saying that employees don't fail training. Training only ever fails employees. And so that's what you need to be measuring um, is the effectiveness of your training overall, and as you said, in, in changing these behaviors. And I think report rate's a good place to start, but don't get me started. There's a lot more <laughs> that we can do is because training, you, you sort of have two classes of CISO, I think, when it comes to awareness. You've got one camp that says, I don't think that awareness really reduces risk, but I have no data to prove it. And then the other camp says, well, I really do believe it reduces risk, but I also have no data to prove it. And um, and I, we can do so much better if we really start measuring uh, human behaviors at, at, a, at a real behavior level and, um, you know, and, and actually tr watching those trend over time and benchmarking those. And that's what Habituate is working on solving is sort of looking at awareness and saying, hey, everybody's been treating this as a training problem for years. I mean, the awareness industry started out with these established e-learning providers who were, you know, okay, we're going to add cybersecurity awareness training to our existing catalog along with, you know, Excel training and harassment training. And, um, and, and that sort of started the industry off with a really sort of learning and development based approach, which is, um, you know, my background is uh, not that I have a advanced degree or anything, but I studied enough neuroscience to, to sort of develop this interest in how do humans learn? Cause we're trying to teach computers how to learn. And one of the first things you realize is that the human brain is not a general purpose learning machine. It's actually a collection of distinct learning systems for different types of things that use different parts of the brain and, and fundamentally work very differently. And so when you're dealing with things and, and you're approaching it from a training perspective, train first and then later you try to recall it, um, that's called cognitive learning. That's sort of what you remember from school where you know, you're in biology and it's like kingdom, phylum, class order, family, genus, species. That's an important kind of learning. Um, but it's very, very specific for learning facts and information and, and synthesizing that, integrating it into your existing knowledge. And in that kind of learning, cognitive learning, you deal with this thing called the forgetting curve, which measures how quickly you forget stuff. And that curve is exponential. So when you first learn a fact, um, let's say you do the security awareness training the way it's typically been done, which is, okay, it's January and everybody gets 10 awareness modules, each of which has, you know, 10 slides and each slide has three bullet points and there's sort of now 300 pieces of data that you're supposed to somehow remember and apply to your job along with all the other training that you have to do in the company about harassment and you know bribery and all that stuff um as soon as you finish the test first of all people are barely paying attention and then they finish the test at time equals zero you have 100 percent retention of that information just a, like four days later you're down to 40 percent already and then 20 percent it drops off very very quickly because the brain is designed to throw information away because if it didn't life would be overwhelming. And, and all of the quote unquote innovation and learning and development is basically there to combat this fundamental biological forgetting curve. And there's things that you can do, like you can hook into the emotional centers of the brain like we do with our content. So you make it funny, you make it memorable, you're engaging the prefrontal cortex, you laugh, you might get a little shot of dopamine that's gonna enhance working memory and attention, but fundamentally you're still dealing with this forgetting curve. 
And I think that awareness really, the whole word is the wrong word to describe what we need to do. Because what we need to do is build habits. I don't need to make people aware of information. I need them to perform certain tasks better. All those quote unquote dumb mistakes that people make, um, that's a task performance problem. And that is very, very different than cognitive learning. That's behavioral learning. And that doesn't go, you know, 100% and then fall off exponentially. That goes, starts at 1% and then goes to 2% and 3%, but you never forget it. And that's like swimming. You don't, swimming is not a cognitive learning problem. You don't learn swimming in a classroom. You don't learn it from a book or a video. You learn it in the water. And once you learn it, you, you never forget how to swim. And so I think that's the kind of approach that we need to take and get rid of the word awareness, frankly, and, and call it something else. Mm-hmm. And I, I think you were right. I was, it was kind of where I was thinking about it too. It's almost a, a misnomer of what we're trying to do. <laughs> um, it's, it's one thing to teach them to be aware of something, but it's, I don't think it's the right fit. We're really trying to get people to think about these things and quite frankly, not demonize them for not getting it the right time. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy you know, that we, we, we hurt people when say, well, how could, you know, we just trained you on not to click on something and you clicked on. It's like, dude, give me a break. <laughs> Yeah, I don't like the not, don't click on this kind of training because, hey, you have to click on stuff. It's your job. If you're HR and you're dealing with resumes, you got to open the resumes. If you're in sales or collections, you're dealing with POs and everyone's going to open that stuff, right? And like bottom line is uh, un, until you have no legitimate use for clicking on links, then don't tell people not to click on links, right? And I think, um, yeah, awareness is is almost a conceited word because – the conceit centrally is security people are technologists. Most of us come from that sysadmin background of old where it's the high priests of the system and we control it and we're smart and everybody else is dumb and they do dumb stuff. And fundamentally, they do dumb stuff. Why? Because they don't know any better and we, our job is to make them aware or they don't care. And so our job is to make them care. And the reality is, first of all, everyone cares already. There's nobody in corporate America who just fundamentally doesn't care about security. Those people tend to weed themselves out of the workforce because that's almost a sociopathic kind of behavior. Um, employees need training on how to use the business computing systems. And we assume that because we've, over the years, vendors have made software and, and hardware easier to use, that no one needs any training anymore. And the reality is that some of these are complex tasks. You'd be amazed at what goes into just choosing a recipient for an email when autocomplete is enabled. Um, that's actually a fairly complex cognitive task. And I think one of the non-obvious results you see in the awareness industry is people assume that the older generation, like the baby boomers and the Gen Xers, are going to be a more risky cohort when it comes to behaviors. They're actually less risky by far when you measure it than millennials. And that's super surprising to people, but has some obvious uh, root causes. One of them is that, first of all, when, when we were growing up with computers, if you made a mistake, you broke your computer and you lost all your data forever. And it was just a mess. And yeah, so you developed this I healthy learned. respect. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like it just hosed. And what'd you do? I don't know. I did this thing in the registry yeah. and like, okay, well, sorry, you lost everything. And, and what? Now the only way you break an iPhone is if you drop it and you still have your data. And so... We, there's a healthier respect. They move more slowly. They're a little bit more cautious. They're less likely to just install apps without understanding what they do. Um, and the other thing is that generation has also received more formal training in business email etiquette and all of this stuff. And, and now if a millennial comes into the workforce, it's, hey, here's your laptop and here's your G Suite or Office and um, 
you're good to go. And it's whatever training you picked up between there, you know, high school and college and the, and the workplace. And so I think this conceit that we have that we just need to make people aware is it's not the right approach. You're sort of saying, hey, I don't – if I'm a doctor, I don't send someone to the first three months of medical school if I'm trying to get encourage them to develop healthy habits. That's not the way to do it. You have to sort of support them. And I think today's workers are overtrained in some of this awareness stuff and they're underguided or undercoached. And so I, I think you really need to sort of not approach this as a training problem. A perfect example, by the way. So here's an example I like to use. These are real world examples, customers that I've talked to, or in some cases, the organizations that I've worked with directly. Um, someone sends an email um, to somebody else. It's a password encrypted word file. Hey, here's your private information. And then in the very next email they send to the same person, here's your password. And we laugh at that. It's super, super common. I'm sure you've seen it a million times. And we kind of go, ugh, you know, we, we sort of slap our forehead and go, what are you doing? Um, but that person has gotten two things correct in their mental model. First of all, you can't send sensitive information unprotected. They already grasp that. That's really important. They've gotten a very, very important thing right. And the second thing is you can't send the password in the same email as the password protected doc. That's also correct. Right? And the only thing that they've done is they've treated the second email as an out-of-band mechanism when it's not. And that's their mental model of, I don't know what happens when I click send on an email. I'm assuming hackers are sniffing these things off the air in a van somehow driving around and like they'll miss the second one. The, the odds of them getting two in a row are low. Once you understand their mental models and you give them credit for what they already understand, you realize that the way we're doing awareness is completely wrong. Yeah, it's... It's it's a human factor, not a technology factor. And uh, one of the things I try to do, when I do security awareness training, is like tell people straight out about look, it, you know, it's okay. Things are going to get through. Like technology will fail. Like on us, like the security people, we will have mail gateways that will miss things and get by. Don't have a false sense of security. And when we say, okay, we're all on the same side of the human element, it kind of connects where we don't try to make people feel bad about the technology. Right. And 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 to say. I think one of the important things is is if we're blocking 99.99% of the attacks that ever make it to the user's mailbox, they never know that that stuff is out there and getting blocked, um, then they're going to have a, a skewed sense of the threat environment. Not that we need to scare them, but simple, simple feedback on how many threats we blocked that were specifically for your mailbox in the last month. If there was just a little meter showing them that, I guarantee you just that little nudge alone would do a lot, but right. We block things and, and, and we never report them to the users. And so they assume, um, a level of safety that actually doesn't exist in the environment and it's not their fault. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's, there's so much we can do, you know, and it's, um, I, I'm excited about what we're doing. I think there's, you know, some other cool companies that are doing stuff and, and CISOs definitely get it now and they're, and they're trying to find ways to get out of this sort of, human sensor network way of thinking, you know, it used to be, you know, human beings are the weakest link. And then we realized that's kind of a crappy way to talk about our coworkers. Um, and so then it became, oh, well, we want to build a human sensor network or human firewall. And I still think that's wrong. It's like, these don't deputize these people into the security team. <laughs> they have other work to do. And um, they're not interested in that. They want to go home. They don't want to, you, you know, if you gamify your training, it's still training they don't want to do. You're putting lipstick on a pig. Maybe they don't even like games, period. Um, and, and so, and, and also the idea of a human sensor network or a human firewall 
gets us back into that technical mindset that was the problem in the first place, where now you're thinking, oh, if human if human beings are part of my firewall, then I can patch them in the way that I would patch a firewall. But I'm patching them with knowledge, and all I have to do is roll out the patch and forget it. Right? I've done my training. I've rolled out the patch. Why? Why? Why isn't the software updated? Right? And it's like, okay, that's a very simplistic view of the human brain. And it doesn't work. And so stop using the metaphor. It's a helpful marketing metaphor. Maybe mm. it gets people projects approved, but um, you don't you don't patch humans that way. It yeah. doesn't work. <laughs> we are a little yeah. bit different than, than computers. Yeah. What, but the cool is- thing, by the way, about about the the quote unquote patching is you don't need 100 percent visibility when you make changes in your employees brains. And so most of the other security technology that's out there is it has to be it has to mediate the exact transaction where the attack or mistake is occurring at the moment that it's occurring it has to be present and it has to be monitoring the data or the or the apps or the endpoint and so you there's just okay we don't have 100% control that business rejected that now we're trying for 100% visibility where if we could just collect every piece of data about everything that everyone does in the entire environment on network off network on the device off the device saas applications and break open all the SSL connections and look inside of everything, then, you know, we'll, we'll be able to detect all the threats and, and like, that's impossible. And it's, and it's, it's a goal that hundred percent visibility recedes the harder you push for it. It just disappears before you. And it also creates a huge data problem. Now you've got all this data, which you, now you're driving more false positives. It means you have to get even more clever with your machine learning and AI and you're creating more work for the security team. It's not that it's a, you know, bad to try to monitor important transactions and important data, but um, the human brain is very portable and it goes with that user everywhere they go. So if you actually intervene and develop healthy habits and ways of thinking and operating, um, then it doesn't matter what device they use, whether it's home, at work, elsewhere, you've, you've got them forever. Well, yeah, it's, it's funny you mentioned like AI and machine learning. I mean, there's there, there's so much that can be done to kind of almost double down on, on human intelligence. We don't have to go so, you know, back crap crazy trying to make all these machines so good there's a lot that that can make humans more uh, part of that system and it's funny you know one of the things i've done in, in some organizations is once you understand the culture that it was a particular law firm doing security awareness training very type a personalities all the partners did training one year came back uh, like the six months later for a year refresh and they were all excited to tell me that you know who was the first one to report uh, spam or phishing attempts before anybody else because they were all type A personalities. They wanted to be first, and yep. they competed against each other in a way that helped significantly reduce their risk. And when we looked at the help desk tickets, yeah, there was a lot of things that got reported that didn't get through, and it built into the model. And it was human intelligence. Yeah, human intelligence. I think wins over all of this stuff, and um, yeah, the security team can't scale to the size of the company. We're always outnumbered. But if you develop more human intelligence and better ways of thinking in your employees and, and you can trust them more, then you've done a lot. And the problem is it's been hard to measure. And, and uh, I think that's, you know, we're changing that and I'm excited about that. I think CISOs get it. Um, and you got to measure this stuff over time because it's not like this AI and ML and all this sort of, you know, DLP and endpoint protection stuff is bad. It's just these things all have diminishing returns uh, mechanism and so you're pushing really hard on this set of risks over here, and you're continuing to overinvest beyond what your risk profile really tells you you should be doing. In, in other words, um, at which point does it say does it make sense to say, hey, you know, we've sort of gotten this control over here, this technical control to the eighty percent level. 
how much does it take to, you know, each additional percent that you buy, it costs more and more and more. And so you're never completely solving these problems. It's the difference between satisfying a problem and satisficing it, right? You're just trying to get it to the point where it's not the biggest risk anymore. And then you switch, pivot to the next biggest risk and so on. And, and then if you get all those done, you go back and rebalance it and do it again. But um, I think we just do what's easy. You know, it's like, okay, we're measuring fishing click rate. Why? Well, because it's easy to measure because it is basically this way marketing emails work. And so it's in a way we're like the, um, so hungry for metrics and ROI arguments that we will be the guy looking for his keys under the street lamp. And his friend asked him, Hey, did you drop your keys over here? Said, no, I dropped them over there in the dark, but I can't see over there. So I'm going to look here. And that that's the fishing click rate in a nutshell. Hmm. Yeah. So one of the things I did want to touch, uh, on too is, is is the founder aspect of what you do you've kind of almost been um a a serial founder of, of businesses in the space what is it different um or let me ask me this way what have you learned from your technology aspect of you know the tech side that applies to being a founder and just growing the business from the op side like what is it that prepared you to be a founder from being a technologist well i think um i've always had a um a people first approach. And so I'm much more of a typical VP of engineering profile than I am a CTO profile. I love technology. I was a pretty damn good developer back in the day when I understood code and, you know, decent architect. And I'm, and I still know enough about that to sort of participate in conversations and my spidey sense will tingle if I see people making huge mistakes. But, um, I'm, I'm not in the technology business. I'm in the people business, you know, and, and people always think that you need this world a world-changing idea to build a business, um, and you don't. You need great people, and you need an idea that's just good enough. And then, if you get the right people on board, you all iterate and figure it out, and work harder than everybody else, and you're going to succeed. I mean, if you look at Duo Security, um, you know Doug is is a personal friend of mine, great guy, and. A lot of people were telling him when he started the company, him and John, that, hey, this is already an established market. Like two-factor auth is sort of a, a boutique concern and RSA dominates that market. And what makes you think you can come in here? And they focused on people. They focused on the UX. What are the actual employees having to experience? How do we make that easier? Hell, they, um, even, they even did it out of Michigan. Who, who, who would have thunk right? it, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and that's the that's the power of a great team. And so I invest in people and, and you know I do advising and, and some investing now in, in startups but to me, it's it's the team is the number one thing. And do you have the right team? Because, you know, if you have B players early on, well, B players hire C players, right? And then the problem with C players is that they make the B players feel safe because, hey, I'm not, at least I'm not as bad as, you know, this guy. And so I think if I've learned anything, it's team first, culture, you know, um, and all that stuff over the tech. And Rapid7 had really great technology. I'm really proud of what we built. Some of the tough architectural decisions that we made early on, I think, panned out. I mean, we literally wrote the product in Java in 99 when people were thinking, Java? Isn't that like this browser thing? That's not enterprise technology. You know, you should be using C++. And so the tech was great, but the, the tech wasn't our real innovation there. I think the real innovation was, frankly, you know, the people that we had on board and how we approached culture and training and how we approached sales. Um, so many founders overestimate the technical risks and they underestimate the go-to-market risks. And so I'm not a big fan of doing a lot of focus testing and asking people, would you buy this if we built it? It's more of like build something small and say, will you buy this right now? What do we need to do to get your money from your bank account into our bank account and be really open about it? And um, 
And I think that that's, you know, these are all non-technical concerns that so many technical founders miss. And so they build cool stuff and then they spend a year doing that. And then they think, oh, we'll just hire a salesperson and then it will, we'll sell it. It's not that easy. Well, I think it's a lot of times it's, uh, it's a weird parallel. So my wife was in retail fashion for a number of years mm-hmm. and the designers would come to say, look, I built this amazing thing. Go sell it. And she's like, I can't sell that. I have to sell this to maybe Utah, Arizona, Colorado. So I need something that's going to you know sell across a bunch of markets and satisfy need. They're like, yeah, but I built this. It's like the coolest thing to them. And they don't realize they have to think about it from the audience perspective or the buyer's perspective. Yeah, I think that's, you know, you're designing something that is great for the runways in Milan, but how are you going to really sell that? And it gets back to the meat and potatoes aspect of solve mainline security problems that are not well solved today. And and so when I looked at awareness as a business, I'm like, hey, man, this is it's a billion dollar industry that's being poorly served. And that's what Doug and John did with Duo is they looked at this industry and like, it already exists, but we can do so much better. And there's pain here that we can solve. So there's a lot of cool boutique security ideas. And, and you ask these founders, well, who are your competitors? And we're a totally new category. We don't have competition. Well, that makes me nervous because now you, know, you sort of got to get CISOs to pay attention to this you know, new category of solution and and basically try to establish budget for something that nobody's talking about. It's much better to to solve an, an existing industry and an existing problem in a way that's 10 times better than, than what is out there than it is to just create some completely new category of solution. And I mean, look at, look at, okay, we talked about Duo, we talked about Habituate. If you look at Uber, Uber did not invent the hailing a car to get somewhere else in the city problem. Right, that business has existed for a century. It was just poorly served, and it was ripe for disruption. And Uber found a way to make that experience significantly better, and they had an early mover advantage, and they changed the world. And Airbnb is very similar. Like, you know, paying for a room to stay overnight in another city is a, a thousands of year old industry, and um, and they use technology to change that existing industry. And I think those business models tend to be more successful, frankly. I would agree. Well, Chad, I greatly appreciate you taking the time to speak to me today. Where uh, where can people find you online? Um, so you can find me on Twitter. I'm just at Chad Loder, C-H-A-D-L-O-D-E-R. You can check out Habituate, www.habituate, H-A-B-I-T-U, number eight, dot I-O. Um, hit me up. Hit me up on LinkedIn. Hit me up on Twitter. Follow us. Always happy to chat with people. Great. I'll be sure to put all that in the show notes. Well, Chad, I greatly appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks for the conversation. Yeah, Doug. Enjoyed it a lot. Thank you. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.